Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. Sometimes I'm envious of my Catholic friends and the availability of saints for common household problems that seem to plague me. If you lose your car keys, for instance, you can say a prayer to, I think, St. Anthony of Padua. If you're trying to sell your corner lot house, you can clasp your hands and beseech, I think, St. Joseph for help. Having trouble with the reception on your television? St. Clair of Assisi is waiting in the wings to give you and your satellite dish a holy helping hand. I learned you can even buy a kit with hand-painted figurines of St. Jude, St. Clair, and St. Joseph, each selected for their crucial area of responsibility in the modern home, with the promise that they will provide comforting evidence that there really is someone out there who cares watching over you and your family in times of domestic need. At least that's what the website said. As extra reminders, there are then feast days and medals and special prayers and beads to go with the prayers. It's all very specific and tangible and orderly, and I love it, and I'm envious of it. Protestant pastors, on the other hand, historically averse as we have been, to saints and statues and icons and really even vestments back in the day, we sometimes feel a little, well, sort of empty-handed. Sure, we can show up at your home to do a house blessing, going from room to room with special prayers, as I have done several times, including for my own home. But the blessing feels so intangible protection and mercy and the presence of Jesus in that place. I don't have an icon to give you to hang on the wall or a statue for your garden or sage to burn or a mezuzah to put on the doorpost as in the Jewish faith. It's just prayers and and Jesus and the hope and prayer for protection and for peace in that home. What happens when Jesus enters the house? A relative who recently moved into a new home proudly showed me all around the rooms of her home. She told me how she prayed for this home and knew it was the right one when she saw a cross displayed in the front yard while it was for sale. Her tour ended with a viewing of a large framed crucifix in the heart of the home. Jesus was in the house, and that gave her so much comfort. These symbols and blessings and prayers and all of our various traditions comfort us and go back to ancient days when home could feel both safe and vulnerable. It still feels both safe and vulnerable. Everything most precious to us is housed there. Warmth and food, pets and books and possessions and photographs, sometimes children. It's why it's so hard to evacuate homes in times of danger like hurricanes and fires, and why you see people hurrying back to see what happened to their homes after the storm. And it's been one of the hardest things during the coronavirus pandemic, too, that our homes can be somehow infected and we can infect one another. So all those things about home get to us, get inside of us. And one of the things we're going to be thinking about this fall is what home means our eternal home, our personal homes, welcoming Jesus into our homes, the earth as our home. Don't worry, we won't run out of topics. 
Home for Jesus was not well-defined after age 30. We know we left the family home in Nazareth and began walking our streets and entering our lives. And unlike the birds of the air, the foxes who have no holes, who do, no, they do have holes. That's how it goes. The birds have a nest and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, is what the scripture says. Jesus never had a permanent place. He spent three years of basically itinerant ministry, which some folks still do today, moving from place to place, entering various homes. And for those who became his first disciples, one of the things he warned them about was that they would need to leave things behind in this nomadic life, that they would leave behind their fishing nets and their homes and their families and their possessions to follow him. When they did so, that they would see this transformation that occurs when people encounter Jesus on the road, along the way, in the boat, on the lakeshore, as they're walking, and sometimes, quite often, it turns out in the Gospels, in their homes. And our Gospel text starts with such a time where Jesus is once again trying to explain what's going to happen to him, how he will suffer, and at the same time telling them to keep quiet. It's not ready to be revealed but he's teaching them as special disciples, as his closest friends. This was hard to understand. So the disciples asked him no questions, and he didn't offer any more at this time. And then suddenly the text turns to they entered Capernaum, and they went into a house. Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, a place that was like a fishing village but prosperous, 1,500 people, trading going on there. It's where Jesus went after meeting temptation in the wilderness. The Gospels tell us he went back to Capernaum. This is where he met James and John and Peter and Andrew and Matthew, five of his future 12 disciples. This is where he performed many miracles. If you go there in modern times, like we did a few years ago on our own wanderings around Israel-Palestine, it did feel like wanderings when you're by yourself doing that, touring around, You learn that archaeologists uncovered an early Christian home in Capernaum in the early 20th century that was actually thought to be the home of Peter. Jesus cured Peter's mother-in-law here and perhaps stayed in that house in Capernaum. After Jesus' death, the house became a place of worship. A church was built there, and this is really early, in the first century to preserve the remains of of the house and the homes around it, which were places for worship. And there's now this really cool modern hexagon-shaped Franciscan church over the spot thought to have been Peter's house and a glass floor so that you can still see that first century church below. It's an absolutely fascinating place. When they enter this unidentified house in Capernaum, and we don't know which one it was, Jesus asked the disciples what they were talking about on the way, and you can almost hear sort of the embarrassment in their actions because they're silent. They're silent because, honestly, they were bragging and arguing about, I guess, who was the best Jesus follower, and they know enough to realize that's not exactly the conversation Jesus would like them to be having. It's sort of like when you or I are in our homes or in the church, and we might be having a conversation that, you know, if we imagine Jesus over our shoulder, might not be the conversation Jesus imagines us having. So it's like that. They're arguing about who is the greatest. And so they're silent, and 
Jesus basically is too, and then they enter into this, to this house. They enter into this house, and Jesus sits down, which in the first century was what a teacher did to teach, not stand up, sit down. Jesus sat down, and he's teaching just his disciples, just the 12 of them, and he's getting his point across. So to do that, he, he finds a child in the home. I presume it is the child's home. And he takes that child, and he puts that child right in the middle of these semi-clueless 12 disciples and begins to teach. And his teaching is essentially this. Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Now, we're so used to that saying of Jesus, and we're so used to this idea of welcoming children and not hindering them that we sometimes fail to recognize how radical it was in context because children in first century Palestine were regarded as non-persons, not yet persons, possessions of the father in the household. So for Jesus to hold up a child, a child as an emblem of living in God's house, a child as a stand-in for Jesus himself, was to offer serious challenge to the social and political and economic norms of that day. I think it reminds us, too, of the passage later in the Gospels, in Matthew 25, when Jesus says, "'Whatsoever you do to the hungry,' the prisoner, the stranger, or the sick, you have done it unto me. We spend all this time thinking about how to welcome Jesus. And Jesus spends all this time teaching us how to welcome each other in his name, especially the ones at the margins. When a child is welcomed or a person on the margins is helped, when their innate worth and value are upheld, when they are drawn into the center of life, when they are loved and cared for, Jesus says he himself is being welcomed, that God is being welcomed. So another way to think about it is if the church leaves out children, it is leaving out God. If politicians making policies leave out children, they are leaving out God. If culture leaves out children, it is leaving out God. For Jesus, welcoming the powerless essentially welcomes the most powerful one of all to be in our midst. Thankfully, we live in a world in which children are valued more than they were in ancient times, but still not enough. We still witness too many photos of cages and refugees under bridges. We still hear about children who've been inadvertently victims of drone strikes in acts of war. We hear about school children in other countries who are captured and held. We hear about them being victims in all sorts of ways and bad working conditions so we can buy cheap goods. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And yet, as COVID cases are rising among children, there are more Americans protesting masks than protesting lax gun laws that allow AR-15s in the hands of civilians 
and force preschools to run active shooter drills. Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me, Jesus said. Do we really want Jesus in the house? Because it's going to take a lot more than displaying a cross on the wall. Jesus showed up in the house in Capernaum that day, and the world's value system to which even the disciples subconsciously acquiesced, according to their conversation, was turned upside down. Being great isn't the point. Neither is being first or being recognized for one's noble deeds or having power and privilege. The little one on the margins was drawn into the center, and the ordinary house in Capernaum became a shelter for the living God. I guess we shouldn't be surprised. The Gospels tell us of so many other times Jesus entered the house and always something significant happened. Not an exhaustive list, but remember Jesus inviting himself to Zacchaeus' house, whom everyone else thought of as a sinner. Remember Jesus in the house of Mary and Martha questioning the busyness of traditional women's work and pulling both sisters into discipleship. Remember Jesus entering the house of Jairus and with a word his daughter came back to life. Or Jesus entering Peter's house and with a touch of his hand healed the mother-in-law. And that evening many sick people were brought to him in the house and they were healed. And in that same house, friends of the paralytic did a little renovation and cut a hole in the ceiling and lowered the man down to get to Jesus and to forgiveness. So sometimes... When you welcome Jesus into your house, he does a little renovation that could feel maybe a little destructive or disruptive at least. Jesus entered the house and a woman anointed his feet with oil and dried them with her hair and someone complained about the lost prophets and Jesus said her actions would never be forgotten. In another house, Jesus refused the customary foot washing done by servants for those with social status, and he himself took a towel and washed his disciples' feet. And a few days before his crucifixion, Jesus entered the house and went to an upper room with 12 disciples, including one who would betray him that night, spent Passover dinner with them, and raised bread and raised cup in traditional Jewish blessing, but then spoke of his own body and blood and the forgiveness of sin. What happens when Jesus enters the house? His presence creates for us a holding environment where life can flourish. We recognize our own gifts and the value of every person, no matter what their social status, and our passion for life can be awakened and our hearts can be open to the world, and we experience forgiveness. Forgiveness in our own houses. Forgiveness and peace. And sometimes that means a little needed renovation or a reminder of what is real and, and important, like the pulling of the child into the center. This is what's important. This is what's real, to be like a child, to seek that kind of humility. And sometimes there's healing or disruption. Sometimes there's death and new life in surprising ways. This year's Presbyterian Week of Action included, it ended with a Vesper service, and it was a service that lamented the nation's gun violence, which kills nearly 100 of God's children every day in the U.S. The epidemic is a crisis that intersects with all these other issues of public health and youth and domestic violence and race and poverty. It is a true 
crisis, and it demands our holy outrage and our holy action. Last year in Cleveland was one of the worst on record so far. The police attributed the spike in deaths to increased gang violence, drug activity, and the pandemic. Of the homicides recorded in late December, 87% of the victims were black. Four, four people over age 70 were killed, and 11 children under age 18. Whoever welcomes a child welcomes Jesus into the house. Do we want Jesus to come in? Of course we do. But are we ready to have our life patterns and assumptions and priorities changed? Are we ready to look through Jesus' eyes at the world? Are we ready to offer healing? Are we ready to bless the children with our holy action to create a world in which every mother's child can be safe and at home and safe at home. We are at our best as God's people when we make sure that the children of the church and the children of the community know that God loves them, that we love them, and that their lives matter and are full of possibility. And sometimes, every once in a while, we too need to be that child. And we need to imagine God pulling us in and that embrace, and that welcome home. How will we welcome Jesus into our homes and our hearts this week? How will we welcome Jesus into the house? Amen. We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.